Welcome to The Right to Shower, critical conversations on homelessness and cleanliness. Welcome back to The Right to Shower, a show with the purpose right there in the title. Each episode, we're joined by leaders like NGOs, politicians, and other experts to explore why access to cleanliness is a fundamental human right. We're breaking down biases, sharing intimate stories, and coming to new understandings as we discuss how providing access to cleanliness is helping those in the unhoused community. This podcast is brought to you by The Right to Shower. The Right to Shower helps build mobile showers for those experiencing homelessness. So stick around at the end of the podcast to learn how you can get involved. I'm your host, Darius Baxter, president and CEO of Good Projects. And this week, we have an incredible guest who is fighting the misconceptions about those without homes and working to change the systems from the inside out. Known as the homeless hero, not the homeless hero, the homeless hero, our guest Shams DeBaron is using his experience on the streets to advocate for real change in New York City and beyond. Welcome to the show, Shams. Shams DeBaron, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for helping to amplify the voices of people who at some point were voiceless. No thanks needed. No thanks needed at all. This is going to be the best episode so far. I already know. So on behalf of our listeners, I thank you, Shams, for uh, blessing us with your time and talent today. I will admit, I don't usually associate with, with guys from New York. Being a buddy from D.C., you know, we call y'all Bama sometimes. But uh, tell <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Before the show, you were telling me a little bit about uh, you grew up in Harlem. Is that true? I grew up in Harlem and the Bronx. I was born mostly and raised in the Bronx during the 70s when New York was flooded with gangs. You know, when you think of like the movie Warriors, I don't know how far back you go. But I grew up in the gang era of the 70s and the crack era of the 80s. You know, so I have I have a lot of history, one of the pioneers of hip hop culture. And I, um, you know, I grew up, I was an academic star in this. Short story is I grew up in the foster care system since the age of two. At the age of 10, I started experiencing homelessness. By the age of 12, I was permanently discharged into the streets. And so, you know, while it's not all gloom and doom, but at some point in time, yeah, I experienced homelessness as a single parent raising my son and in the the New York shelter system, family shelter system, and as a single adult in my most recent time. Let me get a little bit more information on this, Sham. So you said at 14, you were permanently discharged to the streets. No, actually at 12, you know, I started experiencing homelessness by 10, not running away or nothing, but just, just going in the streets, not coming back home and stuff like that and, and spending time in the streets. By 12, the group home I was in, they permanently discharged me. At 12 years old, Shams, you found yourself permanently discharged to the streets. For our listeners that may not understand how this happens, right? We take for granted. We assume, okay, somebody that is experiencing homelessness, okay, they they fell on uh, bad luck or maybe they gambled away everything. But here you are, a child experiencing homelessness. What led you to that experience in your life? Well, it was in the group home setting, and this happens with a lot of foster children, a lot of children in foster care. In the group home that I was in, I was like AWOLing and stuff. I would do parties and stuff. And I had returned one day and they just said, hey, go back where you came from. And I'm like, I came from at 12 years old. 
I guess they assumed because I'd done it so frequently that I actually had a place. But during that time as a child, I was still in, I was involved in hip hop culture. So I was doing a lot of parties and I would end up having to break curfew. And their rule was if you break curfew, you couldn't return until the next day. You would have to go get a physical and then return to the group home. So that would happen frequently. But this particular time, you know, we were told that we can't let you back in. And so I stayed in the streets. At that time, I kind of already knew where to go, where not to go. This was during the time when 42nd Street was known as the Deuce, and it wasn't Disneyland. <laughs> it wasn't like Disneyland as it is today. A lot of danger in the streets then as it is now. Help me understand. So where, where were your mother and father at this time? Like Here you are, a 12-year-old, having a fend for yourself. Well, remember, I grew up in foster care since the age of two. So I didn't have a relationship like that with my mother and father, although I knew them at some point in time, you know, was reunited with them at some point in time. However, that was the issue. It's like when I would go to my mother's house, she would say, you can't stay here. You can't stay here. You know, and there were times where I might be there for a day or two. And then after that, it would be the uncomfortable feeling to, you know, you got to leave. So, you know, that wasn't really an option. Were you an only child? No, I actually have 10 brothers and sisters, and three of us were in foster care together. But they, you know, my history in foster care is is not all gloom and doom, but at some point, the agency wanted to get us adopted, and we fought those efforts to um, get us out of that home. They broke us up. And when they broke us up, this is as we were entering our teens, or, you know, my bro my older brother was, it destabilized us in many ways. By us being so young, they, they took myself and my younger brother and placed us in a group home. Although the only other alternative for us at that age would have been to put us in an orphanage. And they felt like the lesser of two evils would be the group home. The group home was really a place for older kids. So we weren't really supposed to be there, but at our age, it was difficult for them to place us in a foster home. And so it was a difficult adjustment period in that group home setting because I was used to a family setting. And and that's one of the reasons why I would go into the streets and I never really talk about this 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 history. So it's kind of emotional as I'm talking about it. Uh, give me a minute. And take as much time as you need, Shams. I'm trying to just understand here. So you have 10 brothers and sisters, three of which have been placed into foster care. So were your other seven siblings staying with your parents or staying with your mother? No, uh, two of them were adopted prior to, I believe, prior to us entering foster care. And some of the other ones were staying with my mother, and but they were the younger ones coming as we were growing up. I guess, you know, for me, I've seen so many families like that, but the fact that we were in foster care sort of draw a difference. And kids that, you know, grew up in poor environment, kids that were poor were glad that they were not us because we were extra poor. <laughs> and the, the reality of not having your actual parents, it always had its difficulties. In the early days, we were sent from one home to another home. And fortunately, we did end up with a great home that we stayed at for a significant amount of time. And that family was more family to us and gave us that family love. But... When the agency decided to break us up and put us, well, they decided to get us adopted, they totally took that away from us. And that was like a difficult time. 
I can only imagine as a 12 year old, you're in the foster care system while also dealing with the trauma of knowing some of your siblings are with your mother, but you have this mother from what you're sharing with me that is rejecting you in certain ways. So you're dealing with sort of the psychological trauma of being rejected by a parent. You're experiencing homelessness at the same time, dealing with the foster care system and everything comes with that. Shams, I'm just I'm just in gratitude just to be sitting here with you for to understand the stories that we're going to get into today and all that you've accomplished, to know that you overcame that even before the age of 13, 14. It's truly amazing. And for a lot of our listeners, they don't that will never have the opportunity to know or to fully understand what it's like to experience homelessness. Can you just help paint a picture for us of some of the things that you experience? I wouldn't use, not even as a teenager, but as an adolescent being on the streets. First of all, you know, as such a young child, you think you know the world, but you don't know the world. <laughs> and, you know. No, I know. I know. I know. We yeah, kids and good projects every day. 12 going on 27. <laughs> and that was me. <laughs> I was an academic star and that kind of helped me a little bit because I love to read. So I, I was able to experience other worlds and learn things from reading. But just think of how unstable school became, even though I was an academic star. So I had angels that would help me navigate that, despite the fact that at some point I couldn't attend school as I normally would. After weeks of wearing the same thing, my clothes are becoming rags now. I don't have a change of clothes. And so that's a difficult reality. I was a hip hop near a star, you know, so... In those early days, I was so- Were you a producer? You were you were emceeing? What were you doing? I was an MC. I was emceeing. I was- I was. All right, come on. Come on. Exclusive. Play the horn. Droop, 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 droop. Come on. Let's hear it, Shams. Give us a rhyme. Some bars for you. <laughs> come on. Let's get it. I'm serious. Give us, give us, give us, give us two bars. Come on. I, I'm a little older, so my memory, you know, my memory's a little off. Oh, okay. <laughs> I tell you, these, these New York Bamas, man. These oh, New York Bamas. Let me find out. <laughs> So can you just imagine a young child who is a, is popular, you know, and all of a sudden you can't keep, this is when I had hair, I had a lot of hair. You can't get a cut. You can't up keep yourself good hygiene wise or anything. So I had to figure this out. I had to figure out what trains were safe, what trains were not safe. We didn't have cameras anywhere in the city. So anything that happened, it happened. I had to figure this out. Like, Okay, don't ride this train. What time, when can I lay my eyes down to sleep? What time can I do that? In extreme weather conditions, what buildings may I go in that I could protect myself from the elements? There was so much danger in that. Experience. You're navigating this as a kid. This is all as a child. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The idea of trusting people could be disastrous because you had predators and pedophiles out there. And I had to. Let me, be straight up. I had to figure out how to avoid those type of dangers. And that was all around me as a child. It developed, if for me, I kept a switchblade. I'm very good with a knife or a razor. But this is not the way I wanted to live. It's not like I had a propensity towards violence or anything like that. It was like, I'm in a hostile environments where I got to find a way to protect myself if danger came upon me. So that's a whole nother dynamic. And at some point I ended up, I think around when I was 12, I met a individual who was a DJ and 
this guy, his family took me in. And that gave me sanctuary. He was a DJ, I was an MC. We became best friends, partners, and we shared the room. We built the bed, you know, just kids. So it took me off of the streets. And we had our DJ set. We was doing our thing and stuff, and we started putting out records. Well, that's how it happens sometimes, man. You know, it's just though it's serendipitous, those people that you meet along the journey that just help propel you forward. If I might add, this is part two to your, your original question, if you don't mind. The unfortunate thing is that during this time, we also saw the onslaught of drugs in our communities. And this is where beginning of the crack era and the rise of the crack era, unfortunately, a lot of young people got involved in drug dealing and stuff like that. And at some point in time, myself and, and my music partner ended up engaging in that lifestyle. I mention it because it was not something I really wanted to do, but because I'm here, I'm in his house, this is what he's getting into. And, you know, for us, it was for me, really, it was like, I guess this is how I got to survive. So it was not about money for me. It was not about being popular. It was not about being a drug dealer. It was like, this is how I got to eat. I got to fend for myself. I really don't have no one to provide for me. I got to provide for myself. Certainly. What I respect most about you, Shams, is that despite all of that that you experienced, here you are into your adult years, choosing to use your life story as a testimony to support others that are experiencing homelessness. And one of the things that really stand out to me is actually last fall when you helped organize and you spoke at rallies to block Mayor de Blasio's efforts to move occupants of Lucerne elsewhere. For our listeners, can you just share a bit about Lucerne and what that is and how you got involved in blocking these efforts? I was in a shelter during the, the beginning and height of the pandemic and other advocates and activists and directly impacted people began to petition the city to move the homeless population out of those dangerous congregate shelters that we lived in. And so that resulted eventually in the mayor being forced to move us into hotels, something he didn't want to do to protect us from the spread of COVID. During this time, the mortality rate for homeless New Yorkers was 67% higher than the overall mortality rate. So that's just to give you an example how dangerous the environment was. People were dying. When we entered a one hotel on in Hell's Kitchen, eventually there became a backlash in the community. Get these people out of here. The mayor immediately moved us to another hotel on the Upper West Side called the Lucerne Hotel. And once again, there was an automatic backlash. I wasn't upset with the backlash. I actually expected it because I know that in these congregate shelters, the conditions there are like breeding grounds for destabilizing and dehumanizing people. So many people, to cope with those environments, succumb to drug addiction. And many of us struggle with mental illness just from our homeless experience and others from other experiences. Just think of me. While I haven't served in a war, clearly I know what trauma is. Growing up in foster care, living on the streets and being a part of a negative lifestyle and stuff. So these are things that have been long unaddressed. And to be homeless as an adult, it only 
the mental illness could be exacerbated. And when you place me in an environment like those congregate shelters, it, it gets worse. There are no services on site. So I knew that there would be problems no matter where you go, whether we're in a congregate shelter or a private hotel room, if you don't provide people with services. And you spoke up about these things. Yes. And so this, I expected the backlash, but I used the complaints from some of the community members to push the shelter provider to make changes. So some of those changes was, I said, we need harm reduction on site at the hotel. Instead of keeping the penthouse closed to us, open it up. Let that be a little clubhouse for us where we can begin to engage in positive activities. So everything doesn't have to be a group, an AA meeting, but we can do things like play cards. We can ensure So we began to create activity. And the thing that the city misses a lot of times is how to properly engage communities when you're placing a shelter or a homeless population in that community. So we were fortunate because while there were some complaints, a group of ladies, I call them radical ladies, showed up at the Lucerne with their kids in tow and began painting streets and saying, we welcome you. They were called Upper West Side Open Hearts Initiative. Now they call Open Hearts Initiative. And I formed a partnership with them and helped to get them to come into the building and work directly with us. And that changed the whole dynamic of our experience there on the Upper West Side and the experience of those residents in that community. I hear you have a lot of pride in how you talk about how you supported these organizations and how you really spearheaded these partnerships. But there was a period, Shams, where you originally wanted to remain anonymous. Yeah. What changed for you where you were like, okay, I need to, to put myself out here and people need to see my face and hear my voice? <laughs> well, trust me, I had no desire to do that at all. None. I developed the name. I, I, my name is Shams. If you Google me, you're going to see something under Shams the Baron. Well, now you'll see all this other stuff, but I have a history in hip hop. And it wasn't the point of being ashamed, but I am a private person other than what I do artistically. So it was like, I don't want to be known for being homeless. The other reason for wanting to remain anonymous is because when you complain about conditions or when, when you go public, if you speak to the press, it's considered a priority one incident where it gets reported to the chief of the Department of Social Services at the time was... Steve Banks. And most of the times it results in retaliation against you. So sometimes they'll move you to far rock away <laughs> in New York and get you way out the way. And so I feared retaliation, obviously, and said, I got to remain anonymous. The other reason that I wanted to develop a different entity outside of myself was because I didn't want to speak for myself. I was doing things like writing in newsletters and all of this because I was speaking for all of us. I was brave enough to do, I knew how to articulate myself in a letter or whatever the case is. And I knew how to target the people that were entrusted without care, but I had to do it anonymously. So when I looked for a name, someone had suggested to me that I use the name hero. And at first I was like, hero, now that's too much. You know, I'm not no hero, you know, and 
when I went home and I thought about a book by Joseph Campbell called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And from that book, being a storyteller, there's this thing called the hero's journey. And when I think of the hero's journey, I was thinking about the journey that most of us share in our homeless experience of being in that condition, that ordinary world of homelessness or ordinary world thrust into a world of adventure, et cetera, et cetera, with the ultimate goal being, you know, the prize being to get a key and open up the door. So I said, that is good because it doesn't reflect just me as an individual, but could reflect- It reflects an entire community. Yeah, so that is where the homeless hero was born. And the reason why I threw the DA on there, as opposed to T-H-E, because I'm a product of hip hop. You know how we do. I had to throw a little twist. It's the product of the culture, man. You're a product of the culture. All right, so we're, we're gonna turn the pages just a little bit, Shams. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about some common biases about those without shelter. Maybe have you addressed the reality of living on the streets? Where do you think misconceptions about those experiencing homelessness come from? One is that there's a misconception that all homeless people experiencing homelessness are people in the streets. There's a misconception that the cause of homelessness is drug addiction or the cause of homelessness is mental illness. And the reality is that, and well, that's not a reality the reality is that really homelessness is because we have an affordability crisis throughout the United States. We have immense poverty here in the United States. Resources are not presented in communities where they should be presented. And let me tell you, you know, the figures I'm getting, I can speak more for New York than other places because I'm sure it varies, but the figures that I get for New Yorkers experiencing homelessness is 90% of those or black and brown. So there, in my opinion, is a racial element that we don't often talk about, but the racial inequities that we as uh, black and brown people suffer in comparison to other groups is real. And when you go back in history and you look at things like our slave experience, and you bring that up to reconstruction and the policies that were in place and the rollback of those promises that Lincoln made and the development of slave codes. When you look at the development of Jim Crow laws, when you look at Roosevelt's New Deal and you get into how they legislated and codified our oppression and created pockets of poverty for black and brown people, throughout the United States and segregated communities, then you have to say that there's something to be said of the systemic, structural, and institutional racism that actually leads to the displacement of people and actually leads to homelessness. So that can't be negated in these conversations. Well, I think you bring up a good point here. From your own experience, what are some stereotypes that you've seen firsthand that aren't true when we think about those that are experiencing homelessness? Well, a stereotype is that, and I'll tell you what the previous mayor, Bill de Blasio said. He said that because you're homeless, you shouldn't be able to speak for yourself. Like we have to take care of you. You know, you are on drugs or you are mentally ill. These are, this is their language. And that was totally offensive because that's a stereotype. The reality is a great many homeless people go to work every day. A great many are educated. A great many are actually city workers. They work for the city. 
but can't afford the high cost of living in the city that they work for. So that notion that homeless people are mentally ill people, homeless people are substance abusers, is false. While there may be a segment that are addicted to substances or or, or deal with mental illness, that's not the majority, number one, and that is not the cause of homelessness. And here's the thing, and you're bringing up a good point here. So many of those, particularly in New York, to your point, that are experiencing homelessness are going to work every single day and people would have no idea. Would have no idea. We have no idea. And one of the things here on the right to shower is we really want to stress the point of this idea of cleanliness. It's what the show is all about. Can you share with us just your experience with cleanliness on the street? And maybe what were some of the barriers that you had to hygiene? Well, obviously, being able to wash up every day, when we talk of hygiene, I mean, if you look at my teeth, you know, coming up, I wasn't able to access dental care. And you're not able to brush your teeth every day if you don't have a place to go. You're not able to change your clothes. You have to find ways to do that. So for us, I know for my years of experience in homelessness, I had to figure out is there a bathroom that I can go to? Sometimes, you know, Starbucks might be that. McDonald's might be that. A library might be that. But you have to find the ones that you can go to that maybe there's not a lot of traffic because people will knock on the door and they know you're homeless. So they start cursing you out and stuff. The libraries are the same thing. Back to the traits you were developing at 12 years old. Exactly. So you would have to know. I knew of certain buildings and hotels that I can kind of like walk past security or, you know, who's ever at the front desk and just go in like I'm supposed to be there, but I can access their public restrooms. So these are things that I had to do and many of us have to do in order to try and maintain hygiene. And survive. And survive. You bring up a good thing here, Shams, because What you're talking about is a system that even those experiencing homelessness, they have maybe not a physical structure that they live in, but they begin to set up norms for themselves to be able to survive. And and this is important because when we think about those experiencing homelessness, we don't assume sort of all of these different intricacies that are happening in their lives. Can you just debunk for us just a little bit this idea that because you don't have a home that you should just be able to move if someone doesn't want you in their neighborhood? You've spoken before about this compounding trauma, not only being homeless, but then being displaced time and time again. And I'd love for our listeners to hear about that from you. Like, help us understand that. Well, yeah, that's something that's real. Remember I said as a child, what I had to do was figure out where are the safe places that I can go to. Danger is a constant element, not just from weather, but for people who might seek to do harm to you. So as a child, I had to figure out what neighborhoods I can go in, what neighborhoods I could not go in. If I was going to lay my head down to sleep, could I get eight hours? Would it be five hours or four hours? And if I'm going to sleep, how deep of a sleep could I get into? So sometimes when we're searching for this safe space where we find our security, that's a real thing for us. Whether we have a lot of possessions or a little bit of possessions. Anything that you have with you is of value. With me, I kept a knapsack and I used it as a pillow and I used it to carry my most prized possessions. I would have to tie it to a bench just to make sure that if I fell into a deep sleep, 
no one took it from me. For us, it's about having a sense of security and creating a dignified, it, it may not be that much dignified, but trying to find a sense of dignity. And that contrasts with what we see in these large congregate shelters or in these congregate shelters and the experience that we have, not just the physical structure of it, but the experience of being under those type of rules and the way they administer the services, which are inhumane. It strips a person's dignity. Yeah, so when, uh, just quickly, when I went into the streets, leaving the shelter, I was trying to get back the dignity that was lost. I was trying to find a way to restabilize myself because I knew how to do it as a child. But as an adult in trying to trust the system and do something different, I thought that I would be getting help. It was disastrous for me. So things got worse for me and it got to the point where I was contemplating suicide. And in my attempt to get back the dignity, I went to find a safe space. And I visit that park bench nearly every day today here in Harlem because I was looking for that dignity there. And I found it to some extent there. The only remedy for that has been the work that I do, number one, my experience at the Lucerne, number two, and now that I have my housing, I'm, I'm able to restore a lot of what was lost. Well, Shams, you, you may have not known this, or you may have just been giving us a shameless plug, but this is one of the reasons why at the Right to Shower, one of our products is called Dignity for these reasons, because understanding just the sheer importance of that, especially not just for those experiencing homelessness, but for anybody. Dignity is just so important. It's our, our lifeblood, our fuel that gets us up in the morning and makes sure that we can sleep peacefully at night. But for those of us that aren't experiencing homelessness on a day-to-day basis, when we think about shelters and those that are going in and out of shelters, we think of them as these safe places, right? We have people that are on the streets and then there's this physical structure that they can go into. And some might say that a shelter is good enough. It's the solution. It helps people. They're not on the streets. They're not in the cold. But for those without homes, that's a very different experience. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about the reality of what it is living in these shelters. Just give us a little bit about a little bit more about the conditions being there. Well, I call the shelters, and I've been in quite a few here in New York City, most of them for single adults. Let me just make a distinction. There's family shelters, which are different, sort of different. And usually in a family shelter, you're giving your own room or a dwelling that you can basically have a sense of privacy in. So there's a difference. Residential treatment facilities are different. We're not talking about that. And MICA shelters are different. We're not talking about that. The distinction with New York City with the rest of the country is that New York City has a right to shelter law. So every New Yorker has a right to be sheltered. You can't turn them away. So we're seeing now that while there may be a decrease in people in the families, particularly due to entering the shelter city, particularly due to the eviction moratorium that we had, we're seeing an increase, which is gonna change, not that that is lifted, but we've seen an increase in the single adult shelter population or adult shelter, shelter population. The problem is when those shelters are congregate shelters, what they do is they warehouse human beings in these barrack style settings, especially during COVID. These are extremely dangerous environments. I call them congregate death traps. So in my experience, I've witnessed rapes, robberies. I've witnessed 
a lot of violence, they're hostile environments. You're putting different people together without providing services for those that are there on site. So if you have a person that is being paroled from prison to a shelter that has people that are struggling with drug addiction and mental illness, that's destabilizing for the person that's trying to re-enter society and do good. Never had a chance at success. Never had a chance. You're taking someone with me who may have childhood trauma, et cetera, and you're putting me in a place with other people with different traumas and things. You don't know how that might trigger me and disorient me to where I am further placed in a position where I cannot be productive in society. And you tell me to get out every morning and just go walk until it's time to come back in. Walk until your feet hurt, then come back. Well, Shams, I, I want our listeners to know this isn't the first time that you spoke up about these things. I saw in a recent interview where you said the city is providing quote, band-aid solutions. Yes. Now, can you share with us, we know about shelters, but what are some of these other solutions that you're seeing and why aren't they working? You've been a, you've been a critic of these. Well, first and foremost, I think that, and there's that racial element again, I think because it's black and brown people, it's like, man, who cares? What we saw, and we have to connect the dots and I'll do it really quick. Under many administrations, we saw that there was this big push to develop real estate, primarily beginning with Koch. And to do that, when you looked at the 70s, the early 70s, we said the Bronx was burning. After the riots, I hate to, it's, it's real deep, but just bear with me for a second. After the riots, there was a policy instituted or suggested by a corporation called the Rand Corporation. And they told the governor in the city, you should institute a policy of benign neglect. And benign neglect means divest from those communities. Take the money out. They did that. And it led to white flight. And our neighborhoods with the influx of heroin and, and, and cocaine destabilized our neighborhoods. You saw abandoned buildings, broken down buildings, tremendous deep poverty. And I'm talking in particular New York, New York City, but it could be seen throughout the United States in our communities. So when Jimmy Carter came and he said, bear with me, this is a wasteland in the South Bronx. The government began to put money back in. So people took advantage of housing programs and different things that were urban renewal related. So in those days, there were also under Mayor Koch policies that favored landlords. And these landlords would come into the community and do different things that didn't really benefit us. And as time passed, it got worse because someone said, wait a minute, we got more people coming into the city. Why don't we Go back into the South Bronx, go back into Harlem, go back into Bed-Stuy. We'll call those empowerment zones, bring big business there. They'll have Victoria's Secret, Starbucks, and we'll make it attractive to others. And we'll do tours throughout Harlem to let white people know Harlem is safe. So now we have gentrification. So during Giuliani's 
administration, we saw quality of life becoming a centerpiece of his policies, his broken windows initiatives. So if you're homeless, you're going to jail. If you're squeezy, if you're asking for money on the streets, you're going to jail. And that and other things had led to a mass incarceration cycle. It led to further development of the prison industrial complex. But now we have de Blasio, eight years, the Democrat. He's not like Giuliani. De Blasio, he sells out all of the communities. They got 421A. He sells it out to big real estate. Big real estate's coming in. And Let's take a pause here for a second, though, because I, I do want to just dive a little bit deeper, particularly into what you're sharing around sort of as this housing is being developed, because we're seeing issues related to this still happen today. And particularly when we talk about the biases that keep property managers from providing housing for those experiencing homelessness that have vouchers, right? All this money flowing into the city, but we're still seeing, although people say, okay, I can pay, I can live here, I have this government subsidy. We have property managers still saying, no, I don't want somebody in my building that's experiencing homelessness. Well, there are biases, but those a lot of that is perpetuated by the miseducation that comes from the media, of course, but also city administrators. They're not educating property managers on what homelessness really is. You got to look at the fact that they do dehumanize us. They do reduce us to less than human beings. So if a property manager is getting this information or this perception, of course they're going to have biases. Of course they're going to be reluctant. But there's another side of the story that is not often talked about. Yes, there are racist landlord property owners who will not let rent to black and brown people. That's been since the beginning of time. There are those who discriminate against people with criminal records. There are people, they discriminate against members of the LGBTQ community. There are a lot of discrimination that goes on with property managers. But there are other issues that we don't often talk about which is the bureaucratic failures of the city when it comes to administering these voucher programs. But here you are doing something about it, though, Shan. Yes. You found yourself at the end of the day. You're not just somebody that's writing articles. You're not just somebody that's protesting. You were actually named to Mayor Eric Adams' transition team, specifically to help shape the policy and help with the public safety plan. What problems are you addressing with the platform that you have now? Well, first of all, my primary focus is to get homeless New Yorkers housed. I answer to homeless New Yorkers, uh, well, not just homeless New Yorkers, homeless people. That's my focus. Being a part of the transition team was a unique thing because one of the things that I asked for in the very beginning was a seat at the table, voice in the discussion, and hand in the decision-making. So this has been offered to me and some of us, and I'm trying to open it up for all of us experiencing homelessness to give a voice and and a seat to those who are like me in this experience. The mayor and his transition people invited me to that table. With the public policy, they consulted with me before as they were shaping it to see what my views were. And they were clear on, we don't feel comfortable doing this without getting your feedback, without seeing what you think of it. 
And they put in a lot of the suggestions that I made. Is it everything that I wanted? No, not necessarily. Never is. Never is, you know. But I understand that he has to answer as the mayor of the city to different viewpoints and different demographics. The fact that I'm there is a big step for us because the previous mayor would not allow that. And it's a testament to to those going through any struggle, whether it's experiencing homelessness or any level of trauma that somebody might be going through, just to continue to be able to push forward and advocate for yourself and others. will often find yourselves put in position of authority. No one pays me. I'm not funded. I don't have a GoFundMe. Unless you consider my public assistance benefit funding. <laughs> well, at the, at the end of the day, I, I respect that more than anything, Shams. It's the true definition of a public servant, and, and you're doing that. For other officials, we talk about Mayor Eric Adams and the responsibilities that he has. But there are people, and some of our listeners actually, that find themselves in positions of authority, whether public or private. What do they need to be doing? We are in a mess throughout the United States. And we have to understand that we are facing a major crisis of homelessness. As much as I talk about the racial disparities, we have to understand that this is affecting all types of people for all types of reasons. But homelessness is homelessness. And it should be a human right. We should all be given the ability to have a home. So we have to look at it as a crisis in the same way we respond to crises, if I said that correct. We have to respond to this crisis of homelessness. And we have to allocate the resources that would bring people out of poverty and allow them to access homes. So one of the things that we're pushing for is a universal voucher that would be offered to anyone whose income doesn't meet a real livable level. We want people to live with dignity. There are people in homes, but they face housing insecurity. They're one paycheck away from being homeless. And these people have to choose sometimes between daycare and leaving their child home by themselves. They have to choose between putting away from college or saying, no, you got to go out and get a job. This is not how we should have humans living in America. From that bigger standpoint, we have to come together and we have to have the political will to address this as the crisis it is and work to make the change that is necessary in order to eliminate and end homelessness for good. And it could be done. When I speak of New York, it's easy to speak from my experience here in New York City, but I look at New York as we, with our right to shelter, we asked New York politicians, New Yorkers, to let us become that state that shows the rest of the country and the world how homelessness could be ended, how homeless people, while homeless, can be treated with dignity, can be lifted up to the status of humans and given the rights that all humans should be afforded. That's a beautiful way for us to transition to the end here, Shams. And for our listeners today, how can they get involved in all the many initiatives and things that you're working on, wherever they are in the world? How can they get involved? How can we support you? Well, first and foremost, you know, we're still working that out. <laughs> how you use the money? No, no. You know, I'm on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at homeless. DJ Shammy Shams. DJ Shammy Shams. Homeless underscore hero. And on Instagram at the homeless hero. So you can support me just by 
tuning in and just hearing my voice and amplifying that voice. But what I ask people to do, something real simple, is to, one, amplify the voices of homeless people. Help them speak for themselves, advocate for themselves, and assist them where they need assistance. I ask that people, when you encounter homeless people, a smile. You don't have to talk. You don't have to give money. A simple smile would do. Show them that they're human. And if you have homelessness in your communities, begin to reach out to whether it's your elected officials or it's organizations that are addressing it, support those organizations. There are plenty of organizations that are invested in helping homeless populations. I work with everybody in the city and they help me to be able to do the things that I'm doing from urban justice to coalition for the homeless to vocal New York, which I'm a proud homeless union leader of. And there's so many, when I make those calls and say, hey, I need a favor, I need you to you know, address this, they do it. There are religious organizations, interfaith religious organizations who help me, help us. And I would ask to do that. There are students I talk to, young kids, who are saying, what can we do? I say, why don't you partner with a church? And in a safe way, why don't you do care packages for the homeless and give them to outreach workers and people that can go? There are simple things that we could do as Open Hearts Initiative has shown on the Upper West Side and now throughout the city. Simple things like free stores that they do that invite homeless people to come and get not just donated goods, but bought goods. Well, I encourage all of our listeners to follow you in your social media platforms. Again, it's homeless underscore hero on Twitter and the homeless hero on Instagram, because there's no shortage of ideas from Shams, which is one of the reasons why we see him highlighted on so many different publications and participating in so many different policy platforms in the city of New York. I got some bars for you. You got some bars where this is perfect time in Shams, because in closing here, we always try to leave our, our listeners with a, a little bit of an affirmation. Shams, drop those bars to close us out today. <laughs> this is short. This is my testimony, a.k.a. confession. Life fully lived is a life full of lessons now. I ain't no snitch. I ain't no snitch. But I got to tell my story before I'm laying in a ditch. See, back in 69, Gemini became my sign. If you look back, you'll see that was turbulent times. We lost the Black Panthers and we lost our Black power. That's when my moms and pops went through their darkest hour. My mom's became a dope fiend. So did my dad. I, I should have been sad, but I was more so mad. At two, I became a foster child, living with strangers. Grew up in neighborhoods that were extremely dangerous. <laughs> I could go on and on. But I appreciate being here and just wanted to end on a light note because I believe that it's the care and compassion for other human beings that fuels me. I almost died from COVID. And I rose up out of that experience, thanks to the Most High, like a phoenix. And I decided then that I'm not going to waste another moment being angry and bitter. I'm not going to waste a moment blaming the white man and blaming the system. I'm going to go out there and do whatever I can, wherever I can, to affect change. And since I made that decision and went full throttle, I was able to evolve into this person that is giving a voice to the voiceless. And the same way I'm doing it, anybody could do it. 
I'm that guy that was in the streets, on the trains. I'm that guy and I was there as a child. But it doesn't have to define me. It doesn't have to define anyone that you see out there. Let us begin to have more care and compassion and go out there and humanize those of us that have been dehumanized in our homeless experience. Thanks so much for joining us today and listening to The Right to Shower. I also want to thank Shams for coming on the show and talking about his experience on the streets and the work that he's doing to change the conversation around homelessness. If you'd like to get involved, which I know all of you do, there's a few things you can do. You can visit therighttoshower.com slash get involved to learn more about opportunities to volunteer or donate. You can also buy our shower products on therighttoshower.com or through Amazon. For every soap you buy and shower you take, you help us bring showers to the streets. Another free and simple way you can help is to rate this podcast, to leave a review or share it with friends so that we can spread the power of the shower to even more people. I'm Darius Baxter, and this has been The Right to Shower, presented by Unilever.